Sydney Environment Institute, in partnership with Sydney Ideas, presents The Future of Environmental Justice, with speakers Robert Bullard, Maxine Burkett, Carl Powers-White, and Lauren Rickards, and Chair David Schlossberg. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney and the co-director of uh, the Sydney Environment Institute. So we start, as we always do, by paying respect to the traditional and ongoing owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders, past and present. Uh, this place where the university now sits has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and environment, human and non-human, human, non-human, non and culture um, for 60,000 years, two or three thousand generations uh, of passing knowledge about place down. It's crucial as a university, uh, as scholars, it's our responsibility to recognize, to respect, to learn from uh, that knowledge, to recognize and understand how it continues on the land to this day and how it can all help us to adapt to the damage that we've done. And I think of all audiences, one that's focused on environmental justice understands the importance of this acknowledgement and this recognition. It isn't just something we say, it's something we feel, we understand, and we do uh, as part of an environmental justice movement. It's an ethic in environmental justice, a practice of what it means to be scholars of environmental justice. The Sydney Environment Institute here at the University of Sydney uh, is, is hosting this event along with Sydney Ideas. The SEI is a multidisciplinary institute that works on a range of issues in the environmental humanities and social sciences. We work on issues of climate change and adaptation and transition, on food systems, on climate impacts, on oceans and reefs, uh, and of course on issues uh, of environmental and climate justice. So I do need to thank a number of people that have made uh, this event possible, not just this particular event, but the larger event uh, of which it is a part. Uh, this conference we're running on environmental justice. Uh, as is usually the case with these things, it's the people behind the curtains uh, that make these things work. So um, thanks, uh, as always, to Michelle St. Anne, uh, our incomparable deputy director, um, our administrative assistant, uh, Eloise Fetterplace, right here in front, um, for all of the things, all the work that goes into organizing um, again, not just tonight, but three full days plus uh, of conferencing. Thanks also to Anastasia Mortimer. She's around here somewhere already taking photos and tweeting as we speak, uh, our comms officer. Uh, Anastasia's also um, sort of done a lot of comms leading up to tonight, so a lot of stories actually from a number of people on the panel, a number of people that are coming to the conference, so check out the SEI website and blog for some background uh, on some of the participants. Uh, I do have to thank uh, the other volunteers that are helping, to uh, numerous to name. Uh, and then for financial support, of course, you always have to thank people for the money. Um, the School of Social uh, and Political Sciences, uh, SHARC, um, which I will remember this time, it's the Sydney Social Science uh, and Humanities Advanced Research Center. I remembered that, SHARC, um, which has also helped us uh, tonight. Uh, and finally, as always, a thanks to Meredith Hall, who's helping people get seated, who runs uh, Sydney Ideas. Um, and for her work with Sydney Ideas, not just tonight, but in helping SEI bring our research, uh, our engagement, our, um, our relationships 
uh, with folks to um, the larger public, the, the larger university community uh, as well. So the idea of environmental justice has a very long and distinguished history. Um, we're very privileged to have Professor Robert Bullard who's been writing on this topic uh, for 35 years, uh, starting with something back in 1983. So starting with the analysis of the maldistribution of solid waste uh, and toxins, he expanded the breadth of environmental justice research into public planning, housing, transportation, health policy, uh, and more. And while tonight we're focused on the future of environmental justice, um, it's really crucial that, and we can't forget, that this future, this, um, this work, builds on a generation of outstanding scholarship, scholar activism, uh, and academic influence on the policy process. We have at this conference, and we have an embarrassment of riches uh, at this conference, incredible names uh, in that long history, David Pello, Julian Ageman, Amita Bavaskar. We have folks that are, um, are new, have expanded the reach of environmental justice scholarship in many directions. Um, the climate justice work of Chuck Okereke, of Petra Checkard, Robin Eckersley, uh, and more. Uh, and you know, as, as one of the folks who's been doing this for a while and is getting on, uh, in years, it's so rewarding and, and enriching and empowering to have this whole new generation uh, of environmental justice scholars and, and activist scholars here uh, at the conference. Um, it's, um, it's just, um, it's heartening to see. Uh, so um, we could have, and you know, no disrespect to the people that are at the table, but we could have had any mix <laughs> of folks up here to talk about the future of environmental justice. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have some short presentations um, from folks, but then we do want to invite um, folks from the audience to offer questions and comments and reflections so that we all have a larger conversation about the future uh, of environmental justice. I think, um, I have like another page of things, but I, I'm just not gonna talk anymore. Um, I want to get to the main, the main event uh, and the reason uh, that we're here. So let me, um, I guess what I'm going to do is just introduce folks uh, one at a time. They'll come up and give uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, I'll introduce them one uh, at a time and then um, we'll hear from you as well. So Robert Bullard is Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy in the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University in Houston, Texas. He's often and accurately described as the father of environmental justice scholarship. Professor Bullard received his PhD from Iowa State. He's the author of at least 17 books that address sustainable development, environmental racism, urban land use, industrial facility siting, community reinvestment, housing, transportation, climate justice, emergency response, smart growth, uh, and regional equity, and more. Um, He's published a number of works uh, on environmental justice issues in communities of color in the US and globally, and, and his, his first book on the topic, Dumping in Dixie, is required, absolutely required reading still uh, in, uh, in classes, certainly in my classes. Um, so um, let's hear first um, from Professor Robert Bullard. Good evening. Uh, 
I want to thank uh, the sponsors of uh, this event, and I've uh, really enjoyed my uh, two days of the conference. I'm a sociologist by training, and I'm an environmental sociologist, and I'm proud to say that I am an environmentalist. Um, my talk this evening is dealing with climate justice. It's about human rights and eliminating uh, vulnerability. The, my job is to connect dots, and I'm very good at connecting dots. I was good when I was a kid, and I'm good at it now. Uh, climate change is about human rights. It's about housing. It's about those things that make us healthy. It's about food security. It's about you know, water and, and sanitation and transportation and all those things that build quality of life. And climate change will exacerbate existing inequalities and worsen the vulnerabilities already marginalized populations. And my talk will deal specifically with, uh, with the United States and, and within the United States, a very vulnerable region of the United States, our southern uh, tier states, which is our own little internal colony within the United States. Uh, when we talk about climate change and, and human rights, uh, it converges this whole concept of climate justice. And the climate change will have dramatic impacts on health. And if we look at the United States, uh, a developed country, a very rich country, a very wealthy country, we know that if you divide the country up, all parts of the country are not created equal. And if you divide it up into four quadrants or into quadrants, you'll know that, that the northeast is different from the south, different from the midwest, uh, and the west. And there are different impacts in terms of climate change, in terms of extreme temperatures, um, in terms of air quality, diminished air quality, in terms of extreme weather events, food-related uh, food issues, uh, water, uh, uh, looking at mosquito-borne uh, diseases and other kinds of waterborne uh, diseases, wildfires, and other health impacts in terms of uh, mental stress, etc. And so, I come from Houston, Texas, and, and Texas and the Gulf Coast uh, experienced some tremendous um, uh, weather events uh, by the name one of Harvey and Irma, um, and in terms of Puerto Rico, uh, in terms of Maria and Irma. Uh, the United States also, if you look at diseases and like Zika, for example, Zika is not predicted to be uh, randomly distributed across the U.S. There are specific areas geographically that this is, a, this is a problem. If you look at the maps, you can see where the problems are. The, the southern United States uh, has uh, experienced severe weather events four to one as a, compared to other parts of the country. And I'm going to focus on this region because you'll see the south is different. You know, the south is called, I wrote a book called Dumping and Dixie, and Dixie was the South. Dixie Hate was slavery, Jim Crow segregation, racism, um, resistance to civil rights. The South also was different in that this region, the dark red region um, on the map shows that this is the area that had the most uh, billion dollar um, weather events and the darkest state on the map is my state, the, the great state of Texas. Sometimes Texas thinks it's a country. If you look at the weather events from the 90s, the dark yellow represents the, dark, um, the, the most uh, severe event, uh, events. 
And the 90s and also the 2000s, the heavy red, the darker the area, the more the events. The southern United States also, and when you talk about weather events, will hit, be hit hardest when it comes to uh, loss of G, uh, uh, GNP, uh, GDP, I'm sorry, G, GDP. When you talk about loss of income, loss of wealth, loss of, of, um, of property, and loss of transformative wealth being passed down, the uh, UC Berkeley study show that on average, uh, you talk about a 6% loss in GDP if we don't do anything. And, but for the South, it's 20%. The South is, is, um, has a lower income and is more impoverished and can't afford to lose not one dime. Extreme weather events over the last decade, uh, we've lost over $350 billion. If you look at the 2017, we're still in. We've had some tremendous uh, storms, floods, hurricanes, wildfires. I mean, uh, wine country in California. I mean, I was in California uh, six months ago and went to a couple of wineries on, you know, having, you know, having a tour. Uh, and six of those uh, wineries have burned down. Uh, there are places in our country that don't believe in climate change. We are, and I live in a state of denial called Texas. If you look at the heavy red shaded area, these are the areas, the states that have governors uh, that don't believe in climate change. If you talk about people who don't believe in the fact that there's no relationship between energy and climate, the red area represents the, the largest percent of spending in terms of, of GDP for Electricity. We got the highest electric bill. The red, the red area. Green is good. White is bad. That's not racial. The green states represent states with renewable energy uh, standards. And look where the white is. That conspicuous white. These are states that don't have climate adaptation plan. Green is good. White is. It's okay. No, it's not okay. Uh, so if you look at the white. Uh, I wrote a book called the wrong complexion for protection, and how the government responds to disasters and dangers to African-American communities. Books are about 400 pages, and we went through this rigorous process from the 20s up until 19, uh, 2010, and discovered uh, the answer to that is, question, hell no. Uh, Hurricane Katrina, we remember the stories, we remember the pictures, we saw it on television, we saw 80% of New Orleans flooding. We saw people on rooftops. We saw houses drown. I mean, we saw all of that waiting for the government and in the convention center. And at the, I mean, it looked like a country war-torn, people trying to escape. Uh, some of us learned a long time ago when you wait for the government, you can, that'll be very hazardous to your health. Hurricane Harvey, 2017, August, two months into it, same picture waiting to be rescued, houses, convention center. I mean, there's a river that runs through Houston called Buffalo Bayou. It's one river, but it is like two rivers because how the use of the river is like night and day. It's called Buffalo Bayou. Buffalo Bayou is in a watershed, and along that river on the west side, it's beautiful. They've got reservoirs. They spend all of our flood protection money for the west side giving false confidence that you can protect. But at the same time, this is the bayou, beautiful park, great, everything you can think of. But what? It flooded. 
the reservoirs were flooded, the dam was threatened. And beautiful homes, million and a half, two million dollar homes, shakers and the movers. Same bayou, same river, it's the river that runs through the city, it's a ship channel. Industrial, that's the heart of the petrochemical capital, same Buffalo Bayou, uh, and communities on the east side experience next door, neighbors of refineries, petrochemical plants, and Superfund sites, these are dangerous sites that are flooded. Uh, these are dangerous, so dangerous that people have to, I mean, they have to cart them off and dig up the stuff and declare them a hazard. So the vast majority of the Superfund sites that flooded were in people of color communities. All those dots, I know you can't see all that, but the, every dot represents something that's bad. And if you look at where the bad stuff is disproportionately located on the east side, divided in half, East side. When you look at the green, it represents 95% people of color. All the dark stuff that's in there, that's bad. The yellow area represents low income. The red dots represent inadequate, uh, inadequate uh, drainage, flooding. And you look at the, the areas that's, you don't have anything in there, no red, that's where the white people live. Look at the, the dots where the big refineries, look at the Gulf Coast, the big dots. This is what next door to our communities. Refineries, next to the parks, playgrounds, schools. Uh, and this is the South. This is a zip code. All zip codes are not created because the redder the area, the higher the percentage of poor people. Economic distress. You can map this all the way. And what we're saying, climate change will make marginalized community, vulnerable communities even worse. We trace it all the way back to the 1860s. This is a map of 1860 where mostly black, black people located in the South. This is 1950 doing Jim Crow segregation. Same map, but 100 years later. 2010, green area represent mostly where African Americans are located. Heavy green in the South. This is where mostly Hispanics are located. South Florida, Southwest. Blue area represents where people of color are located along the southern tier parts of the country. This is the poverty belt, that heavy blue area along the southern US United States. This is where the highest concentration of poor children who get free lunches in school. The worst place to be a kid in terms of what do you get uh, being a kid, poverty. This is the worst state to, uh, uh, health departments in the state. The bottom tier states represent the bottom quartile, dark blue. The healthiest states, that's the states that's orange. Well, you don't see any orange in the South. This is the uninsured belt, dark green, the largest percentage of people who are uninsured. This is the stupid belt. These are the people who voted <laughs> Say, we don't want Obamacare. We're going to go all the way to the Supreme Court and we're going to sue. They lost. This is the life expectancy. The lighter the area, the shorter people's life expectancy. Look at that conspicuous where the light is. This is the heart disease belt, heavy brown area, heart disease. This is the cancer belt, lung cancer belt, that dark brown area. This is the stroke belt, heavy purple. This is the food insecurity belt. People who don't have enough money for food, 
That's pink. Somebody told me, oh, that's not pink, Dr. Bullock, that's salmon. I said, well, I got a PhD in sociology, not Crayola. I didn't have salmon. <laughs> Looks pink to me. This is the, this is the no car, no supermarket called food deserts, that heavy brown. The idea of what I'm saying is, oh, 12 minutes, is, is that because of pre-storm vulnerability, before these floods, before these hurricanes, climate change will exacerbate all of those things on that map and will make it worse if we don't address the, the issues of, of vulnerability, the issue of environmental racism, if we don't address the issue of dealing with social class and economic segregation, and the whole idea of how we have structurally laid out and planned our cities so that we place certain populations at risk. And the most vulnerable in our society are the children and children of color. And as Mahatma Gandhi said, that uh, the uh, nation is judged by the way it treats its most vulnerable children. And so I got a lot of other maps, but I don't show you because I got a few minutes. But the idea is that, is that we are a very wealthy country, and we are not even in, in bond right now. We have, our country has said we don't want to go there. But if we can't address the inequity and inequality and the climate issues that confront us at home, I mean, we, for sure we can't do it abroad. It starts at home. And the climate justice movement and environmental justice movement in the United States, we are committed to, to fight for environmental justice and climate justice and human rights. Thank you very much. Just 35 years. 35 years of making these powerful statements uh, about injustice, and uh, it's, uh, it's always incredible uh, to see Bob Bullard. Um, next up, Maxine Burkett. Uh, so Maxine joined uh, the William S. Richardson School of Law in 2009. She teaches climate uh, change law and policy towards ocean and coastal law and international environmental law. She's written extensively in diverse areas of climate law with a particular focus on climate justice uh, and the disparate impact of climate change on, vul on vulnerable communities uh, in the US uh, and globally. Uh, she's uh, worked, uh, done some incredible work also on migration, which she presented earlier in the conference. Uh, her work has been presented um, uh, throughout the US and West Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Caribbean. It's been cited in numerous news and policy outlets. Uh, and we're very privileged, privileged uh, to have Professor Maxine Burkett here with us tonight. And it's a, a great privilege for me to be here as well. So thank you so much for the invitation. This conference has been incredibly stimulating. I've, I've learned so much. I texted my kids, fantastic conference. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, miles away. Uh, but for, for very good reason. Um, for those of you who are at the EJ conference and, and saw the presentation I gave yesterday, there's some overlap in um, what I'll talk about over the next 10, 15 minutes and what I discussed yesterday, but I promised, David, that I would have another indelible mark left with you with a photo. 
this photo, has anyone seen this photo, by the way? Do you know what this is? Are there any arachnophobes in the audience? I, I've had to ask this in advance before. These are spider webs, yeah. So, so these are, um, this is the kind of climate surprise or no analog futures that we can imagine. This is actually the, uh, also a, a tale of displacement, if you will, in that uh, from a sudden onset event during the um, August 2010 flooding in Pakistan. Uh, it took so long for the water to recede that the spiders had retreated to the treetops and created new habitats. Uh, and this, this, these are the spider webs that are the result of that. Um, we also, uh, I did show this image. Um, this is uh, what we understand in the environmental law professor world in the US. There's been a lot of discussion about um, replacing the notion of the elephant in the room for the octopus in the parking garage. Um, this is a, a picture of uh, a parking garage in Miami Beach, not after a storm, um, simply a, a high tide event. This was a king tide event, and the octopus was safely returned, uh, but this was uh, something that you can't imagine. This is, again, this sort of notion of this new analog future that we're entering into and the unexpected side effects that um, I think signal seismic changes for the law, which is obviously where I'm most concerned, um, being, being a law professor. But what I want to do for the, for the next few minutes is, is talk about climate justice from the perspective of migration, but also see it in, um, uh, in the perspective of maps and how we um, understand responsibility. And then I'll dive more deeply into climate migration and, and the law and policy implications and close with this notion of the legal feedback. Um, but first, I would like to just note that this is an adaptation of a uh, talk that I had given about um, shortly after the inauguration this year, which seems like it was decades ago, given what's happened <laughs> in the interim. But um, America First has been the sort of uh, um, the mantra of our current administration in the US. It's been a big part of our uh, energy policy and our foreign policy. And there's some irony in that, given that we have some other notable firsts that I think are worth mentioning. Um, I don't know how many of you know much about uh, climate, the history of climate law and policy in the US, but you might be surprised to know that the first president that was formally briefed on climate change was Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965. So in 2015, it was the 50th anniversary of this briefing about climate change and global warming. And it was a really amazing document. If you look at it now, it was called Restoring the Quality of Our Environment. And um, it was, again, issued in November 1965. And if you look at the table of contents, it's almost identical to any document you'd see today, including um, the Climate Science Special Report that's recently come out. Um, unbelievably, uh, from the, our administration, um, or at least the, the agencies uh, beneath it. Um, but some important language is important to, to, I think, think about here. And again, the first president uh, to uh, have a briefing on climate change in 1965 understood that even though we're talking about a small percentage of the atmosphere, that to living creatures, these small fractions are of vital importance. Within a few centuries, we have dug up what it took half a billion years to uh, sequester um, in our natural environment. Similarly, uh, there's an understanding that this is a, a, a vast geophysical experiment, that it's deleterious from the point of view of human beings, and the possibilities of deliberately bringing about countervailing climatic changes need to be thoroughly explored. And this, is a, this was a first, 65 years, over 50 years of understanding uh, where we are with respect to climate change. Now, um, what we know with, with uh, migration is, is uh, sort of explicitly told by, within the context of sea level rise, the maps of the world will have to be redrawn. And of course, climate change uh, 
engages with this map, the physical map of the world, but we have done this to the world, right? And from the legal perspective, there are so many um, massive issues that are implicated both internationally and subnationally based on the kinds of um, legal uh, decisions that we've made, right? Decisions about borders and boundaries, um, states and, uh, and nation states, states within states and nation states themselves interacting with each other. There's another atlas that's important from the perspective of climate justice, and that's the atlas of pollution, right? So our emissions are quite different. So if you can understand the map, uh, and this map in particular saying something about how states interact and this notion of justice, this is a snapshot of emissions uh, where you can see that entire continents are dwarfed by the actions of a single country. Um, this is also, that was a snapshot of, of 2011, uh, 2009, pardon. This is a, a 1850 to 2011 cumulative um, carbon dioxide emissions. Again, this tells a very different story from a climate justice perspective about the inequity in terms of our, both how long we've known it's been an issue and what um, relative contribution to that issue has been. Another way to look at this is per capita emissions. Um, again, the United States, in this case, is not first, it's second, but still among um, the leaders of the pack. And if you were to imagine this bar graph going um, all the way to the emissions, say, of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, wrapping around this wall over here, you would get to the per capita emissions of a small island nation like the Marshall Islands. And I mentioned the Marshalls because, in particular, we had um, a, a symposium that uh, the University of Hawaii had hosted with the White House Council on Environmental Quality in December um, before the, the change of administration. And in partnership, we were uh, considering migration, displacement, relocation in the context of sort of US communities and communities that would be hosting other communities from the affiliated Pacific Islands. And during um, sort of an important break in our conversation was one that was uh, offered by Foreign Minister Silk of the Marshall Islands, who during our keynote, uh, um, again, in the middle of uh, some kind of wonkier conversations about what we do, how we manage migration and relocation, reminded us that it's just insane that we are having this conversation, given what's at stake for his country and his people and uh, uh, his ancestral relationship to his land and the future generations. So with that, um, we understand that there is something going on in the Western Pacific and I'll, I can say more about this particular slide, but it gives us a sense of what, what's to come. There are a number of dynamics that act um, on a particular landmass. In this case, the Western Pacific is experiencing much of it for a number of reasons, but sea level rise is certainly one of them. And so we have this um, popular understanding about the climate refugee, which, as a, as a law professor, I have to say, is, is, is not the accurate way to describe what we're, what's happening because there isn't, um, these, they're not refugees by definition. And I think it's important to kind of nitpick about that because what it means is that we have not actually assigned any rights to the, or status to these um, people that are moving and rights that would allow them to move um, with, with dignity, both in the process of, of making the decision to move and in transition and then in resettlement. So, the, so it's important to recognize that. I just want to footnote that and I can get back to that um, if there are more questions on it. But we, don't, we haven't assigned um, a, a status that allows for rights and obligations to engage um, with each other moving forward. But we still have this popular narrative about how we're making islands disappear. Um, and this becomes a different way of understanding migration itself. And uh, as I've shared with some of you, I'm originally from Jamaica. I'm an immigrant. Um, 
to the United States. And I was too young to be engaged in the conversation, but I do fully recognize that any decision to move is a multi-causal one. There are a number of inputs, a number of drivers for why you might move. Um, for my mother, uh, it was um, because of my dad, so I guess I suppose that's a social driver. Um, but for my dad, there were political reasons, there were economic drivers, and um, in many cases, when people make decisions, again, there's, there are a number of different ways you would think about it, and you might migrate, you might stay. And what I would like to suggest is that climate change presents a different kind of driver, something uh, uh, not like your mother's driver, right? It's not your mother's driver because it's quite different in terms of how it will dwarf these other drivers over time from what we understand about the um, uh, climate forecasts. And so we have to, I think, consider what the scenarios are for climate change. And some of this work has been done. Um, I'll give a couple of examples afterwards. I just want to lay out the categories. There's um, what we understand to be uh, climate change, uh, yielding um, unrest and violence and conflict over resources that pushes people to move, um, slow onset environmental degradation that will uh, also uh, push people to move, that's drought or um, uh, coastal, constant coastal flooding and inundation, designated prohibited areas, it's a planned relocation that happens oftentimes um, within countries, sudden onset disasters, and uh, what's been categorized as destruction of small island states. But I want to be careful here because I don't want to suggest that uh, this is a fail complete, that we can only imagine small island states being destroyed, but suggesting that that's, uh, uh, that's possible and something we have to work um, pretty actively against. But in the scenarios that we've seen, um, one is Syria, and I can say a lot more about it, it's somewhat controversial, but there's a timeline in, in which you can see that there's a confluence of events that um, almost made the, the, uh, the conflicts inevitable and the move that had to happen as a result of it. This is a slide that's been in my slide deck since early 2011, and it was describing the change in the environment. It was simply just a statement on what, where the environment was heading. This was the, the third of very severe sets of, of, of droughts. Um, and we see that uh, through some of the WikiLeaks, other documents, that this was in fact a major destabilizing factor for um, the country. Um, that is a, an example of conflict and uh, unrest causing, causing migration, in fact having some kind of ongoing relationship. For slow onset, uh, uh, the, the impacts of the Arctic melt that's happening is having significant uh, impacts on the United States. Um, Alaska in particular, communities, Native Alaskan communities that are suffering from the um, melting of sea ice. Other indigenous communities are at the front lines in the United States. The Quinault tribe in the Pacific Northwest uh, has had to formally come up with a plan to move. So this is where slow onset and planned relocation are, um, are both exist in one event. Um, and then, of course, the, again, the sort of very loose uh, language around climate refugees, but the, there has been media attention paid to what is understood to be the first official um, community that's had to move. Um, I can speak more about the specifics of their relocation, but this is the Biloxi Chitimacha Choctaw tribe located in Le Jean Charles, which, as you can see, has become very vulnerable after decades of um, channelization for oil and gas. Um, upstream and Mississippi River uh, development, all colliding with sea level rise, makes this place unviable. And then, of course, this, the sudden events. This was the flooding that uh, produced the displacement of the spiders and millions of people as well. Um, these induce uh, migration. As, so does events like Hurricane Maria that are unimaginably um, large and literally um, engulf and envelop uh, entire nations in this case, islands that are affiliated with nations that are otherwise engaged. 
So um, the Pacific Islands in particular have been of um, unique attention because of the story and the narrative around the complete loss of territory. Again, it's a complicated one, and it presents the notion of extreme trade-offs. That's the world we're entering into, the no-analog future that introduces extreme trade-offs in which islanders have to decide between staying um, uh, and, uh, uh, in, in fact, using language about not leaving the bones of their ancestors. Um, and still being at the front lines of this kind of unique and disproportionate vulnerability. So all of these events, again, um, have different implications, and there are a number of categories that you could fall into once you're moving. You could be temporary displacement, it could be permanent local, permanent internal. There are a whole host of ways in which you can be moved, um, or have, uh, have to move, or be pulled to move to different areas because of events in your home state. And in fact, all of these um, Categories suggest different kinds of institutions and laws that will be relevant to you. And I would uh, unfortunately have to share that the, the number of, of spheres of governance make this much more complicated. It's kind of a, a legal and political hot potato. There are international law norms, domestic laws, um, hybrid laws, and none has necessarily taken on um, the, the concerns directly. And, and some of them are hard, hard too, because of, they may be uh, simply related to internal displacement. They may have some element of cross-border migration. All of this is at play. And so we have a problem of what I would suggest are legal feedback mechanisms. And this is a based on uh, uh, excellent scholarship that was written in 1990. Most of my students weren't even born by then. Um, and uh, Professor David Karen was already writing about what the impacts of law um, will be on our decision making around climate change and how uh, relatively uh, vulnerable we might be as a result of what the, what the law channels um, by definition. And he was talking about baselines and maritime delimitation of territory. Um, but he essentially said, in borrowing from physical science and the notion of positive feedbacks, that legal feedbacks will not alter the amount of climate change, but it will aggravate the suffering that will accompany such change. The greater the change, the greater the aggravation. And I would suggest a perfect example of that is the absence of uh, a, a, a name for what we have, uh, the phenomenon that we're experiencing and the individuals that are actually um, subject to that, to that move. Um, but generally speaking, climate migration, I think, pulls, um, well, it certainly introduces novel legal issues um, that I don't know that we're yet prepared to, uh, to address. But it also pulls on unfinished work of our current legal regimes, namely um, exploitation of power, whether that's electrons or human beings, um, equity, historical contribution to both climate change as well as uh, to vulnerability to climate change, which Bob, had, I think, really illustrated pretty clearly that it's not an accident that some communities are more vulnerable to these impacts. In fact, it's sort of baked into the um, sort of the historical um, infrastructure, the scaffolding that we've set up. And uh, I think there's been a good amount of paralysis on this issue that um, has predominated and has, uh, I think, um, we have to move beyond. Um, and I also think that um, we have cu currently legal structures that have gotten us here, supported, again, these, um, these social circumstances, but also fuels this continued paralysis. And climate justice itself has a lot to say about this. There is um, uh, great literature on law structural complicity and the uneven outcomes and forecasts for the 
poor and people of color, the very design of, of certain areas of law, most areas of law, in, in fact, particularly corporate law, international trade law, are fundamentally predisposed to environmental degradation or, and are at best uh, indifferent to differential outcomes as a result of the, the, the laws being um, exercised. Uh, there's the notion of, of, of not really um, having a clear understanding of what obligations are for states um, in response to individual rights, and that absence itself is, can be understood as a wrong. Climate justice, I think, can also leverage other critiques, um, international migration law, um, great literature on how it's, it, it itself actively creates refugee crisis by its own parameters. Um, climate reparation speaks of non-repetition. Uh, how can we understand that as a key part of what we, um, we pull and use to create a more just future given the reality of no analog events, which I think climate migration epitomize. And, um, and what we do now is expect environmental law or international environmental law to do all of the work to fix this. But I'd like to suggest that it's impossible that it will, it can on its own, and in fact other areas of law are, are more complicit in these negative outcomes than international environmental law or environmental law itself. I also want to just remind everybody that of course we are right now set for 3.3 to 3.6 degree increase in global temperature. Um, based on the nationally determined contributions, and this literally would produce a whole new world, right? one that we have not seen before and cannot anticipate. I asked colleagues, what does 2060 look like to you? Um, and suggest that no one really knows. Right? We are at the tipping point, if not on a full de decline from one regime to another. We're at that, that inflection point at best. And we understand that climate change is not just a change, but it's, a, it's an increase in the rate of change. So it's moving quickly. There's no such thing as a new normal, because that suggests a stabilization that will not come about. And that there are some known unknowns, but they're unknown unknowns, right? To borrow not from who you think, actually, the philosopher who actually came up with that term, uh, Bernard Lonegren. Uh, so in, in essence, I think this shift does not necessarily require better environmental law. It requires a whole new thinking about our socio-legal structures. And um, I think that's perhaps the most uh, unwieldy octopus in the parking garage. Thank you. And this is the thing that gets to me, is we, we, we've had 35 years of research on vulnerability and increasing vulnerability, and now we have a set of events that's only going to make it worse and worse and worse in ways that we haven't figured out legally uh, how to address. So thanks, Maxine. Uh, next, uh, we have Professor Kyle Powers white um, Kyle's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Uh, he holds the Timic Chair in Humanities at Michigan State. Uh, he's an associate professor of philosophy and community sustainability, a faculty member of environmental philosophy uh, and ethics graduate concentration, faculty affiliate for the American Indian Studies and Environmental Science and Policy programs. Uh, his research focuses uh, on moral and political issues concerning climate policy and indigenous peoples, uh, the ethics of cooperative re relationships between indigenous peoples and climate science organizations, uh, and he really is uh, an inspiration as both an academic uh, and an activist uh, and as someone who, who creates these relationships uh, between indigenous and academic and scientific communities. So thanks, Kyle. Bonjour, bonjour. It's great to 
be here. Uh, I just wanted to start off and say that, you know, for those of us Native folks in, in, in North America working on environmental justice issues, we're really inspired and energized by all the incredible work that Indigenous folks uh, here in this place and this land are, are doing. Uh, and we also recognize, of course, the, just the long-term struggles and the screwed up stuff that, that, that happens here. And so we're... <laughs> We're proud of what you all have accomplished, the indigenous <laughs> folks here. Uh, and uh, not to be a stereotype of a Native American person, but I will be presenting off of the, the oral tradition and not showing any slides. So I do have a few notes that I'll be looking at. And I'm going to do my best to pretend like I'm using all three of these screens that are right here in front of me to, you know. one of the biggest misconceptions of the oral tradition is the best elders actually use many different notes. So I wanted to talk about a, a few ideas that I've been thinking about about the future of indigenous environmental justice work at the intersection of scholarship and activism. The, the first point I wanted to make, thinking about the future, is you know oftentimes the bar is set super duper low for what indigenous people get to say about our traditions of environmental stewardship. It's almost like it's always just enough to just say, oh, like native people, we think that our relationships with plants and animals are, are sacred. Or, you know, our beliefs are that everything is interconnected or all my relations, uh, or that we have these spiritual and sacred uh, connections to ecosystems. And then that's it, that's the end of the discussion. But for my tribe, Potawatomi, which is part of the Anishinaabe people, when I began going back, looking very carefully at our traditions, at our intellectual traditions, at our systems of governance, hundreds of years of thinking, of practice, what I found was there was so much more that was there. And that the days where all you have to do is talk about sacredness and spirituality, that's over. And the future for us is to actually realize that when we think of indigenous environmental stewardship, indigenous environmental governance, so something like for Anishinaabe people, wild rice, the sacred relation to wild rice, well, the sacred and spiritual relation was cashed out in terms of lodges, committees, decision-making processes, leadership structures, organizational capacities. In fact, you could identify all of these different social relationships with wild rice, but wild rice wasn't the only thing that we harvested. There were hundreds of plants and animals that had all of these different aspects and dimensions of social organization created around them. And when you look at these things in detail, you don't just see some bizarre Christian sense of spiritual reverence. What you see is that these forms of social organization modeled some of the ethical qualities that are most lacking in settler societies today. They were among the most consensual systems I've ever seen. People in leadership roles were accountable, and those responsible for keeping knowledge were trustworthy. There was reciprocity, <laughs> right? Our knowledge systems had a peer review process at every step along the way. The researcher, although they had a different term in our language, 
every stepway was accountable to those people who would be impacted by the research. So they modeled these high moral qualities, but at the same time, we rejected permanence. For Anishinaabe people, our philosophical traditions are not ones of sitting in the same place trying to be permanent like a settler society there. And oftentimes, native beliefs get caricatured as just about the local place. Our philosophies are actually about migration and motion and constant adaptation to change. So for example, in our leadership tradition, not only is it the case that it's women, two-spirit persons, who play prominent leadership and decision-making roles, but if you're somebody that growing up you felt that you wanted to take on a gender role that might not be the one that's on average associated with the gender that you started with, our society was built to allow for that fluidity. So there was gender equality, but gender fluidity, and it wasn't the weird two-gender system that you have in a lot of settler societies, right, that's extremely oppressive and highly problematic and makes for just this not to be that fun of a place to live, right? <laughs> and so what this says to me is that for indigenous environmental justice activism, that we can actually point out that a society that has rampant sexual violence and disrespect of, of women, disrespect of girls and two-spirit persons is an environmentally unsustainable society at the same time an environmentally just society with sustainability outcomes is one where there's gender equity and fluidity. And so one of the key points about the future of indigenous environmental justice is that we can actually show institutional forms of organization that reject permanent permanence embrace fluidity, <laughs> embrace constant change, we can also show that our societies have all sorts of governance traditions that are highly communal that actually permit more personal freedom, more freedom at the individual scale than what we find in the United States or in Australia. And this is a whole area of intellectual work that can be done, and it's a gift of our ancestors to us, hundreds of years, decades, centuries of these traditions. A second point that I want to talk about is that our conceptions of time, of the experience of time, are also becoming more prominent in the environmental justice work we do. For indigenous folks, we oftentimes talk about cyclical time. In the Anishinaabemowin language, actually there are all sorts of things that you wouldn't think about in English. Like, for example, we have words where ancestor and descendant is literally the same word. So that you're living actually in constant dialogue with ancestors and descendants. And in fact, some of the best work right now on indigenous environmentalism, on indigenous environmental justice, is what I call the science fiction of the present. That is, we understand ourselves today as living in what our ancestors would have seen as a dystopia. Yet dystopia is not for what a lot of non-indigenous folks is a fear of the future, but dystopia today is actually a source of empowerment. And so for indigenous people, we don't have to be trapped into narratives of hope and narratives of brief, or grief. Rather, we're in that troubleshooting phase of figuring out how do we break out of this dystopian present that we're in, what our ancestors would have understood as a dystopia. We're actually seeing indigenous folks now, especially in scholarship, realizing that it's not good enough to just, in the academic space, work on sustainability for adults. 
If your work cannot be presented and moved into the space of children in all different age groups, if it's not part of one process with elders and people of different age groups, then your work is not intergenerational. We're seeing folks even ask questions in their environmental justice work today about what is it that I can do that people living three or four generations from now would not want me to miss, something that I couldn't possibly see now in my present experience, but would be what they are most thankful for in the future. And so we're seeing again environmental justice work that's intergenerational from an indigenous perspective, which is actually a way of living out that cyclical time. Another point I'm seeing has to do with, with allyship. And a lot of non-indigenous folks are interested in the question of, well, what can they learn from indigenous people? And I think that that's a, an interesting question. It's also one that's been tricky to answer, but that now we're moving beyond that model and actually talking about allyship in terms of allyship is only as effective as the success of indigenous people. If indigenous societies are still living in situations where you can't consent to mining and other sources of environmental degradation that are affecting us, if indigenous women are still among the population at most risk for sexual violence, if indigenous men still are constantly having to live with the pressures of conformity to white patriarchy, if indigenous economies are only able to focus on one to two business opportunities instead of the diverse business and entrepreneurial portfolios that our ancestors would have enjoyed. If, if all of these things continue to be the case, then what is allyship? No matter how much you learn about an indigenous tradition, if you're not engaging in the actions that will change and make us successful, then we haven't actually figured out what allyship would look like. And so with the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, I met so many people that their involvement out there at Standing Rock was the first time that they had engaged in Native issues, and they thought they had done their part. And I was thinking, well, what are you doing on a daily basis? Are you addressing all of the micro laws and policies that are what affect our capacity to succeed as indigenous people? And so we're moving away, too, from a concept of allyship that's just based on learning, but it's a sense of allyship that's actually saying, well, wait a minute, allyship must, at the end of the day, lead to our success as indigenous people, to the ending of these issues. Finally, I wanted to say some things about environmental justice scholarship uh, that come out of some of the points I've shared, but I want to add a few other things as well to this. So, first of all, especially the last two weeks, I've engaged in a number of different academic events. I usually prefer to go to tribally organized events, and that's a great part of my job, is that's primarily what I get to do. But I've just been frustrated that even in this day and age where we have so much great indigenous scholarship out there, that especially a lot of non-native scholars, even a few indigenous ones too, are still citing the same old white guys in their work. <laughs> I was so disappointed when I went back and researched what I'm calling indigenous environmental studies as an entire trajectory of, of, of thought and intellectual tradition that not only includes big hat indigenous, but all the different specific tribes, the thousands all over the world 
that have traditions much larger than even the West, taken as some kind of big hat concept. And all of these great articles that would be some of the best in their field, but nobody's ever heard of them or cites them. That needs to change. Especially given that some of this stuff could be solved in Google. So for some of you who are doing scholarship, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you see that some white guy wrote on a topic, just think, is it possible that this white guy was the only person that ever wrote on that? <laughs> Push yourself. You'll find that there's more. And the final thing I want to say about scholarship is that we're now seeing so many more indigenous people move away from the idea of the individual scholar or professor as the source of academic reputation and credibility. And rather, we're operating in collectives, intergenerational collectives, scholarship that is or that comes out of community contexts, of, of tribal contexts, of indigenous people's contexts. And so there's no such thing as the researcher. Rather, there's the collective. And there might be somebody who's technically employed as a professor, but that person's entire work comes out of that person's identity, history, kinship, you know, those thick relationships with where they come from. And so we're seeing things like academic research events coming out of tribes. And those are great because we don't do any of this lecture at all. It's games and dialogue and talking circles, outdoors, you name it. And the scholarship that comes out of that excites everybody who's part of it. It excites entire communities, entire indigenous nations. And that's not participatory research, and it's not top-down lecture research either. It's research that's a wellspring of the communities themselves that operates at that collective level, but that requires the right kind of support. And for universities, I really want to see, of all types, university of all types, begin to back this research up and to back this indigenous methodology up so that it's not just, say, one type of place, like a tribal college where you could do this, but a research university, an urban university, any type of academic institution. For those of us who are more senior in our professorial positions, we've got to be doing our job to make this possible for what now is a very fast moving and up and coming generation of scholars that this is how they want to do things and they won't settle for anything less. I look forward to chatting with everybody more during the question and answer. Miigwech. Every time, every time I hear Kyle speak, it, it, I mean, it's not only inspiring, but it just, it, it pushes us to change what we do. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, last up, and, and you know, one of the things that we're, we're doing here um, with this conference is we're thinking about environmental justice in the Australian context. And one of the things that we're doing is is uh, just recognizing that it's been 20 years since uh, the first time that our colleagues at the University of Melbourne did a, um, a conference on environmental justice as a, as a global ethic for the 21st century. And so um, we wanted to bring in an Australian perspective on, uh, and actually a representative of this sort of new generation of environmental justice scholarship. When I got here seven years ago, you know, this is sort of 
one of the things I was looking for is who, who's doing this work, who's doing the creative work, who, you know, who is this, what's happening here and what's the new generation? And Lauren um, was one of the first people um, that, um, that I met. So Lauren Ricards is uh, co-leader of uh, the Climate Change and Resilience Research Program of the Center for Urban Research and a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban, and Social Studies uh, at RMIT uh, in Melbourne. She's uh, an incredible interdisciplinary researcher with a background in human geography and ecology, but her work focuses on the relationship between issues like human and planet and urban and future and resilience. Um, her work is, is conceptual, it's critical, it's empirical, uh, and it examines, well, in particular, most recently, um, the experiences uh, and images of disaster and how they illuminate uh, and generate a range uh, of competing perspectives. Um, she's done some incredible work recently uh, examining interpretations of resilience uh, after the Hazelwood uh, coal fire. People know about that in Latrobe. She's done some work on the Tasmanian uh, uh, World Heritage Site, uh, wilderness area, uh, and uh, some work on the 100 Resilient uh, Cities program. Um, we've recently uh, co-authored a piece that's in the new Handbook of Environmental Justice uh, with Jason Byrne on the importance of place and place attachment and detachment uh, in uh, Australian environmental justice. And it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Lauren Ricards. Okay, I'm going to add another screen to this. So I think that makes four. All right, well, it's a great pleasure uh, and privilege to be here and to uh, bring up the rear on a very uh, impressive panel and I'm going to try to weave together some of the uh, very uh, provocative ideas that we've already heard. There's a huge amount for us to discuss so I'm sure the um, arms will go up in a forest uh, as soon as we finish. Uh, what I want to do is talk about uh, three main points. I want to talk about uh, the role of humans as world makers and relations, um, the relationship to the idea of denaturalisation. I want to talk about the problem of black boxes and those, uh, another metaphor, the elephants in the room as well that uh, still haunt a lot of our work. Uh, and I want to talk about futures because this is, after all, a conference about the future of environmental justice and justice is, of course, about reimagining futures. So to begin with the, the idea of worlds and world making, I want to just reflect on some of the ways that the current climate change crisis in particular, but the broader Anthropocene as well, encourages us to think about us in the world. And one of the most critiqued elements of the Anthropocene discourse is of course that anthropo, that anthro, that species perspective. And while part of the problem with that is of course, and I'll discuss in a moment, the huge um, and violent homogenisation that that does, not just across the present and the space and society today, but of course across different times. What it also does is uh, encourages very much a organism in environment type uh, ontology, an, an organism and environment imagination. Now, a lot of the time we turn to this as an improvement on the idea that we're actually atomistic individuals. We think by placing the environment there in the context, we're actually 
taking a step forward. And in, indeed, it is a lot more progressive than imagining that the environment doesn't exist. But nevertheless, uh, I think we're at the stage of maturing our conversation around climate change in the Anthropocene to start to worry that particular uh, way of thinking. We, because one of the problems that it does is that while it emphasises uh, our context in nature, it emphasises our continuities and relationships with other species, it of course naturalises the current situation. And one of the main things environmental justice has been so good at doing is denaturalising that, forcing us to realise that we don't just take the environments, that the issue is not just who has to take the current distribution of environmental bads and risks, for example, but those environmental risks and bads are actively made. They may not be intentionally made, but they're knowingly made, increasingly knowingly made because of the work of environmental justice scholars. So we really need to work at that denaturalisation at the same time as we're encouraging the world more generally to think more ecologically, to think more environmentally. And that's a really, really difficult uh, mind play to get right. One of the things that we uh, gain from taking that is that by seeing ourselves as uh, world makers, we see all of the opportunities uh, in terms of the capacity for us to think more consciously and do world making more consciously, to do it better. It also encourages us to see world making uh, as a labour. And we heard a little bit uh, today in the conference uh, from Kurt Iverson about the importance of labour and the perspective um, of seeing labouring not as necessarily an identity but as a practice, that continuous practice of making worlds. So if we think for the moment about our current context in this room, <laughs> what we are part of here is world making. And I don't mean that just in the sense, not to downplay this is a momentous moment, an event, that we're part of a discursive making, we're on a tipping point, uh, and I firmly believe that as Maxine talked about, but that what we're part of is the continual degradation of this building around us. So everything around us is dynamic, it's continually changing and moving towards, through this process of extraction, building, degradation, waste, throwing away, etc. So this whole dynamic movement of the materiality of part of what we're doing is something that we construct through our urban process. And one of the things I found most stimulating in the last year is thinking is urban as a process, not just urbanisation, the kind of ongoing expansion of city limits, but urban as a process. So when we look here, we're aware of the energy uh, flowing here. We can possibly imagine the particular power plants uh, that are uh, generating that, and we can possibly imagine the emissions that are coming from most of those, given Australia's heavy reliance still on fossil fuels. But we also need to see everything around us. And again, one of the contributions of environmental justice is uh, really getting us to see the materiality and seeing our roles in that and seeing that constant process. So denaturalising what we're in, denaturalising the, the um, current situation and the current world and seeing it as something that we're actively making every day with our daily decisions is really important. The, reason we need to do this is that we need to start opening some of the black boxes. 
So by black boxes, I'm talking about uh, literal boxes. I'm talking about that materiality, the bricks seeing the kind of processes that are part of this very, very uh, material situation that we're part of. But I'm also talking more about the social black boxes. When we talk about environmental justice, the usual array of actors tends to use uh, words that we all particularly use uh, in our everyday parlance, such as nations, such as states, government, corporations, locals. Feminist scholarship has gone a long way to get us to complicate the different identities we play but there's a lot further we need to go with the specificities of understanding some of these key actors in environmental justice situations. So if we take environmental justice not just as the key moments, not just as the Hazelwood coal mine fire, not just as the Adani Carmichael mine contestation, but as the everyday process that's going on right here uh, in Sydney University, right here in Sydney, right here in Australia, in everything we do, everything, every decision we make is potentially contributing to an environmental justice outcome. If we see that, then we start to see a whole array of actors that generally don't get discussed. Now, part of the reason we don't discuss, say, the black box of the boardroom or the council room or the cabinet or the chambers is that we can't get in there. <laughs> So it's kind of ironic that we're here in Sydney Law School and I think we should all just actually just dissipate out quickly and just <laughs> listen to what's going on <laughs> so that we better understand that lawscape, those practices of law. It's empirically very, very difficult and I know I've just had a um, wonderful PhD student uh, at the University of Melbourne finished working on consultants and consultants are some of the most invisibilised and yet most powerful actors uh, in today's society. They are the chameleons uh, par excellence. It's their job. I used to be one. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of work to do, I think, to study up, to study inside these black boxes, to complement the really important work we do with local communities, with understanding that big government, big corporation perspective, understand the decision making. And I don't mean just to kind of find the baddies and to quarantine them and maybe put them through some legal litigation process and try to sort of name them and out them like bad apples. I mean to understand the norms and practices that are way sub-litigation level, that are sub-legal and really understand <coughs> what it is that makes up this system uh, that is so problematic when we look at the outcomes of the world making. So the third thing I wanted to talk about then was this notion of futures because in world making we're all driven by a notion of what the future holds. And when we think about this we can see the really, really powerful role that contested and different versions of the future play. Think about the role of uh, maps of resource exploration that underpin share prices, that underpin the value and therefore the power and influence of different key corporations. So it's, as Maxine pointed to earlier, the role of maps and the importance of maps here, but it's also these maps that promise something. This is the speculation that sits uh, so much uh, underneath our financial markets, for example. So futures are a really, really important thing and the um, other side, if I can call them that, are really, really good at doing it. And I think one of the things the environmental justice movement could do 
is actually become much, much better and much more explicit at presenting different futures. Now, I'm not talking here about blueprints. I'm not talking here about plans and a united consensus about this is what we're doing, but to throw up alternatives so that at the very least, those speculative futures of this is how much brown coal Victoria has, therefore this is how much brown coal Victoria ought to use, because once we know it's there, it's otherwise wasted. Those sorts of perspectives need to be uh, challenged with different futures. This is what Victoria used to look like. This is what Victoria could look like. These are the other social and environmental resources it has. These are the water costs of that particular brown coal uh, vision. So we need an active contestation of futures. And when we do that, we're actually going to start reliving some of the active contestation of futures that occurred uh, in the post-World War II period, where it was a really, really explicit strategy of different nations to put forward different scenarios. So there was a real contestation between the US and the USSR, as it was then, and also France, to put forward different national perspectives of the world. And so there you get world-making not as a practice, uh, but world-making as an explicit rhetorical device. Now, I'm not saying we necessarily do that, but we do have to start uh, being more overt, being more explicit, I think, in presenting positive futures so that environmental making becomes something that's backed up with a whole lot of positive visions and positive voices that people can actually identify with. Because as one of the things we do know about the black box of decision makers is that they're actually quite easily swayed when they have something to kind of rely on, something to uh, relate to, which is where, uh, although problematic, the whole impact agenda in research can be actually really, really useful. So there's a whole lot of uh, very, very positive and important work we need to do. There's a whole lot of uh, digging around in the gutter that we need to do. I don't think we've gone deep enough into the gutter of the existing system. We need to get in those back rooms. We need to get in those courts, in those chambers, and somehow understand what's going on. But in doing so, I think we can really start to see that we can tackle a whole lot of uh, intersecting issues at the one time. One of the things about climate change is, of course, that the processes generating climate change are the same processes generating vulnerability to climate change. So by tackling those processes, the negative world-making that's going on, the very, very uh, conservative and past-oriented futures that are being presented to us, through advanced liberalism, by challenging those, then I think we really can help to make a more environmentally just future.